You know, sometimes I got to tell you, I wish the book of Jonah had ended with chapter three. If it had, it would have ended on a high note. The prophet would have been fabulously successful in ministry. And you know, we could have written over this entire project, mission accomplished. And then I, I wish there were a little epilogue at it. You know, just a little note at the end of chapter three that said, kind of everybody lived happily ever after. You know, uh, Jonah stayed in Nineveh, spent the rest of his life discipling the Ninevites, teaching them the word of God, encouraging them to share their faith and sending them out as missionaries to all the other nations. What a, what a glorious ending that would have been. The book would have ended with a bang. But that's, that's not how it ends, folks. And I believe the Holy Spirit designed for the greatest lesson of Jonah to come right at the end in chapter four. In fact, this is one of the greatest lessons taught in the entire Old Testament, and it really anticipates some of the things that are coming in the New Testament. If the story had ended in chapter three, Jonah would have looked quite good the reason I love the Bible, one of the many reasons, is because it just, it, it tells the truth. It's honest. When God paints the portrait of a woman or a man, he paints it warts and all. And God shows Jonah at his very worst in chapter four. Chapter three that we saw last week is the picture of a successful person in ministry. Chapter four is the picture of a failure in ministry. Jonah is a failure. He really is. Because even though he had all this amazing outward success with the people responding to his message, his heart motives are still a mess. So let's walk through the story here and we'll conclude with two poignant questions that I want to pose to you as we wrap up the entire sermon and the entire series. Let's jump in with verse one, Jonah chapter four and verse one. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Now, now why? Why was Jonah so displeased? Answer simple. He was ticked off by the fact that God gave those old Ninevite pagans a break. Jonah, in his heart, hoped that God would fry them. But when they repented, and Jonah saw God's mercy extended to them, he was beside himself in anger. Perhaps you've heard of that historic message by Jonathan Edwards. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, probably the sermon title that's best known in all of history. Well, I think you could call chapter four of Jonah God in the hands of an angry sinner because that's what Jonah is here. He's the prophet of God, but he is an angry sinner and he's taking his anger to God here. Let's read on. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, to keep this from happening, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew who you are. <laughs> I knew what your character's like, God. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O oh God, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. One of Jonah's problems is he was very self-centered. Think about this with me. His theology was very orthodox. It was correct. He just described God right there, so to anger, abundant and loving kindness, compassion, all those things. That is all true. But Jonah's personal desires are clashing with the character and the will of God. In the Hebrew text, the words I, me, and my in just those two verses, verses two and three, the words I, me, and my appear seven different times. So get the picture. Jonah's got the right information in his head. He's got the right theology, but he was very self-centered. He didn't want God's grace to extend to anyone but himself and his own nation. Now, let, we, we gotta just pause here for a moment because Jonah's problem is too often our problem. Jonah was educated far beyond his obedience, and that's our problem too. I mean, we know we ought to take care of this temple God has given us. We ought to get plenty of rest and good exercise and eat properly, but is that what we do? Probably not, most of us. We're educated beyond our obedience. We know that some good godly practices in God's word and in prayer and spending time with God and sometimes fasting and seeking God in prayer for extended periods of time, we know these are healthy things to do. We know we're supposed to be in fellowship with other believers, but is that what we consistently do? Millions of American believers would have to answer, no, I'm, I'm, I know it's right, but I'm educated beyond my obedience. Or what about marriage? We know that husbands and wives should bring a servant-hearted attitude into the marriage and try to do, outdo one another with serving the other. But is that what we do? Too often it's not. Our problem? We're educated beyond our obedience. And that was Jonah's problem. Jesus said to his disciples at one point, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. The implication is, look, just, just get it straight. Either stop calling me Lord or start doing what I tell you to do. We need to obey what we know. But man, this is a brutal lesson. We gotta take it even a step deeper. God wants us to do the right thing, but are you listening? He wants us to do the right thing with the right motives. Jonah eventually did the right thing, as we saw last week, but he had a wrong attitude and motives. You see, this takes us even deeper than last week. You remember, last week I said Jonah did the right thing, but his heart wasn't into it. Remember that? And it's wonderful, it's wonderful that he went and preached to Nineveh, but God cares about our motives too. He wants us to do the right things 
for the right reasons. He's interested today in your motives and mine. Why are we doing the things we do? And the longer I'm a follower of Jesus, the more I'm impressed that our motives are critical. They're critical. God wants to know, is your heart changing? And Jonah wanted the Ninevites to get fried, and that's why he's so mad that God showed them mercy. We read on, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, Jonah never answered that question verbally, but he answers it behaviorally by what he did in verse five. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. I think he's in countdown mode. I think this dude is still hoping God's gonna rain down fire and brimstone from heaven. He's counting it down, 27, 26, 25, counting down the days. And he's disappointed that nothing happens. So God provides three instructional tools to teach Jonah. He provides a plant in verse six, a worm in verse seven, and a wind in verse eight. Let's read on. Verse six here says, so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah, whew, he got, he got happy. He was extremely, it says, happy about the plant. Now, what is this plant? This is Possibly, when it says it grew up overnight, it may just be a hyperbole, just a figure of speech to say that it grew very rapidly. That could be what it is. Some have identified this plant as the Racinus communis. That's the technical name for it. It is native to that part of the world, and it grows extremely fast. Or this could have been just a flat out miracle where it literally, literally, in a miraculous way, grew up overnight. We don't know for sure, but that's not the point. Notice the contrast in Jonah's attitude from verse one to verse six. In verse one, Jonah was greatly displeased because the Ninevites repented and came to faith. But now, Jonah is very happy and pleased because a little plant provides him with some shade. The contrast is going to be very, very important later. Let's read on, verse seven. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Now, this wind, this scorching east wind is that Scirocco wind that blows off of the desert. 
And in that area, these kinds of winds could last for days, three days, five days, seven days. And man, they are brutal. And so Jonah here is just downcast. Now, it's interesting. There's a word that's used frequently here. It's the word appointed in the version I'm using, or in the NIV, I think it uses the word provided. And you've seen that word show up in the book of Jonah. In chapter one, he provided a fish to save Jonah. And now God provides a worm to discipline Jonah and teach him a lesson through this extreme discomfort that he's shortly gonna have to endure. And I point out that word provided because it's related to the key theme of this book, which is God's holy love. The Bible teaches us that God is both loving and he's holy. He not only blesses people with what they regard as good things, but sometimes God blesses people with chastisement and discipline. In other words, God allows us to experience discomfort and pain and heartache, among other things, to teach us some lessons or to burn off the impurities in our lives. And discipline is one of the clearest examples of God's holy love. In the book of Proverbs chapter three, we read, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And I want you to notice that three times in this chapter, three times in chapter four, verses three, verse eight, verse nine, Jonah says, death is preferable to life. Wow, this is one miserable prophet. He just wears his feelings on his sleeve with God. He says, God, I'm done. I've had it with this prophet gig. Just take me out, God. I'd rather be dead right now than alive. That's his prayer. Hey, just a personal aside here. Do you ever pause and thank God for unanswered prayer? Yeah, yeah. I have many times when I think sometimes of all the moronic things that I've asked God for through the years, I am reminded of how gracious it is of God that he sometimes says no to my crazy prayers. Amen? Are you the same way? You've prayed for some pretty stupid things and you look back in retrospect and you go, God, thank you. Thank you for saying no to that crazy request. By the way, you know the whole book of Jonah that we've been spending time in this month of June is a fascinating study in prayer. Did you realize that prayer occurs in every single chapter? In chapter one, we saw the pagan sailors praying. In chapter two, we saw Jonah praying in his desperation from the belly of the fish. In chapter three, we saw the people of Nineveh from top to bottom praying, crying out to God. But here's the interesting thing. In chapter four, Jonah's prayer is the only prayer in the whole book that receives no for an answer. 
God did not take Jonah's life. And you say, well, why? He wanted to die. Well, God had more things in store for him to do. Now, please don't miss this part, friends, because it's the climax of the book. Here in chapter four, God pulls back the curtain and he reveals both Jonah's heart and God's own heart. And wow, what a sharp contrast is at work here. Jonah's heart is full of greed and God's heart is so filled with grace. Verse nine says, then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I, God says to Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. Now, you say, well, whoa, what does that mean? That is probably a Hebrew expression. It usually is describing children, young people who aren't yet fully conscious of morality and fully conscious of all that's involved in right and wrong and what's at stake here. It's usually describing children. So 120,000 children in the city, God says, as well as many animals. Now the word concern has the idea of pity there. The emphasis is upon the helplessness of the Ninevites. Just like us, they have no ability to save themselves. So God had to save them. God had to extend compassion and grace. And so there it is. Jonah's story ends, can you believe it, with a question mark. And we go, that's it? You gotta be kidding me. I mean, what a way to end a book with a question? Come on, what's the point here? Well, just as this book ends with a question, like I mentioned, I wanna wrap up the whole sermon series with a couple of questions, and I think, personally, they're penetrating questions. Only you can answer these for yourself, but I want you to ponder these two questions as we wrap things up today. First question. How do you feel? Don't blurt your answer out now. Answer this in your soul, honestly before God. How do you feel when people you don't like receive grace? We love second chances for ourselves, but we don't always wish them for others. Isn't it ironic to you that Jonah had just received grace from God in his disobedience but he doesn't want the Ninevites to receive it. He reminds me of the elder brother in the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. He was angry like Jonah was angry. And when the father in the story, in Luke 15, when the father questioned him about his anger, he said in verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That older brother's attitude shows that he, 
He was kind of dealing with a works righteousness. Do you know what I mean? He didn't know the joy of sonship. All he knew was the drudgery of slavery. And people like that, and so many are like that, are very insecure about their salvation. And they're insecure about it because deep inside, they think that they're earning their salvation. And so they have to keep comparing themselves with others to feel that they're all right. But someone who gets grace is not like that. Someone who gets grace, she says, look, I don't deserve to be saved, but God showed me mercy, praise God. Is that how you feel? That's how Paul felt. Consider what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, he knows he doesn't deserve it. Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And after he contemplates God's mercy, he, it's like he gets so excited. Paul here bursts into a doxology of praise in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Now listen, brothers and sisters. When we understand grace, our hearts are gonna overflow with thanksgiving. And grace also results in the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. And that combo, that combination of thanksgiving and love just makes us wanna share with people. Why? Why do we? Because we're so grateful about God's grace in our lives. We want others to get in on it. Christ's love in us drives us and compels us to tell others about the salvation we have. Oh, I love some of the great women and men in history. Billy Bray was one that I, I admire. He was a coal miner. All of his life, he was actually quite poor, continued to work as a coal miner, even though he was a preacher. He was one of the early Methodists in the early days of the Methodist movement when the movement was so healthy and strong and vibrant. Now, when Billy Bray was a non-Christian, he knew he didn't deserve God's grace. He was a raging alcoholic whose life was out of control. He would call himself a vile, the vilest of vile sinners. But one day, reading John Bunyan's works, he came to faith in Christ. And like I say, after his conversion, he continued to work as a coal miner among the poorest of the poor in the country. And his fellow workers were coarse and vile and mostly violent people, but they could not resist the power of Billy Bray's preaching and mostly his love for them. And so many were converted to Christ through his faithful witness. But can I tell you what's kind of funny? It makes me chuckle. When Billy Bray heard one of his fellow miners had come to Christ, he would go over to their house. He would talk to them. And this is the truth now. He was a big brute of a man, very, very strong. 
He would put the guy up on his shoulders, literally go outside and run around with the guy on his shoulders, just praising God. That's how excited he was when somebody else got in on the grace that he himself had received. He was thrilled by that. But that's one of Jonah's big problems, see? Jonah believed deep in his heart that only he and his people, the Jewish nation, merited salvation. They deserved it, but he was absolutely wrong about that. Nobody deserves salvation. Not the Israelites, not the Ninevites, not the Lathamites, <laughs> not the Saratogites, not the half moonites. Amen? None of us deserve salvation. So, can I tell you, in case you're just wondering, what is the church about? What is this family of God? What is this? Can I tell you? We're just a bunch of people who are so blown away by the fact that none of us deserves to be in the family. We don't get bent out of shape when other undeserving folks, just like us, come into the family as well. Because we know, we know, we get it, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And nobody, nobody deserves to be in this family. So if you struggle, again, we're just trying to be honest here, right? I know this is brutal. I know this is invasive. I know this gets incredibly personal. But if you struggle with God's grace being extended to other people that you don't like, I'm gonna recommend a prayer for you. Here's the prayer I would recommend you pray. Lord, help me see the world as you see it. Would you pray that prayer? If you struggle with other people receiving God's grace, people you don't like, pray, Lord, help me see the world as you see it. So there's the first question. How do you feel when people you don't like receive grace? But here's the second and the final question of the whole series. How well do you distinguish, nobody can answer this for you now, how well do you distinguish between the permanent and the perishing? That, that was one of Jonah's main problems. He didn't distinguish between the permanent and the perishing. How well do we make that distinction? Let me ask you, sir, let, let me ask you, ma'am, where do you spend your time, your discretionary time? Where do you spend your money? What gets most of your energy and focus and attention these days? All the gifts that you have and the abilities, where are you putting those to work? Are you only giving time and effort and energy to things that are perishing? Or has the Lord gotten through that plants and people are very different. Let me say that again. Plants and people are very different. Plants are perishing. People are permanent. 
people are gonna go on living forever and ever somewhere. Hey, tell me, what do you get excited about? If I could sit down with each one of you right now, one-on-one, and just, hey, in a fun, loving, personal, warm way, say, hey, tell me what makes you happy. What, what makes you sad? What are, your, what are your passions and dreams? Tell me about those hopes that keep you going. If we could sit down and have that conversation, the things you would describe, the things you're giving your life to right now, are they permanent? Or are they perishing? Will they be around? Will they have any value 100 years from now? Every one of us has to answer that question. So what is, what is your Nineveh? That thing that has permanency about it. What is that mission to which God is calling you to give your life? That thing that is costly, but oh, it is so worth it. Just before World War I, a young man arrived in Cairo, Egypt. Oh, what a young guy he was. He was 25 years old, a graduate of Yale University, Princeton Seminary. He was tall, handsome, athletic, intelligent. He was single, and he was very rich. His name, William Borden. William Borden. He was heir to one of America's great fortunes with the Borden family. But you know what? William had turned his back on all of that fortune. All the privilege, the luxury. He had turned his back on all the money and what it could have bought for him. And he's on his way to China, of all places, as a missionary. He wanted to spend his one and only life not on what was perishing, but on what was permanent. But shortly after arriving in Cairo, on his way to China, he became critically ill with cerebral meningitis, and in a matter of days, young William Borden was dead. People back home were aghast. They said, what a tragedy. Was it worth it? Later, his biographer wrote that William Borden had said three phrases that summed up his commitment to Christ. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. In his final days and moments, on planet earth, there was not even a hint of regret that he had given his one and only life 100% to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you giving your life to? There are a thousand things that could make that list, but how many of them will have an impact for eternity? How many of them will enable you to say at the end of your life, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. 
I believe there's only one way you can truly say that. And that is to be a sold out follower of Jesus Christ. Father, I don't know what it is about your word, but it, it penetrates to the deepest thoughts and desires of our heart. It cuts through the sinews and the tissue, even the ligaments and the joints, and it goes right to the core of who we are. There's something, Father, about your word. I don't understand it, but it kind of exposes us for who we are. Thank you for doing that today. Thank you that by your spirit, you've taken the word of God and you've driven it supernaturally home to our hearts. And may your word not return void. May it accomplish the purpose for which you intend and the work you've begun in our souls, the work you've begun in our lives. Oh Lord, would you carry it on? Would you just keep on doing what you're doing, the good stuff, the growth, the sanctification, the change, the transformation? Would you just keep on, keep on drawing us along? We're so grateful for your mercy and love. We're so grateful for the grace that none of us deserves, but that you've so freely given. We thank you for it as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.